You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland, Maine, and broadcast each Sunday at 11 a.m. on WLOB 1310 a.m. and available streaming online at WLOBradio.com. Podcasts are available at DrLisa.org. Thank you for joining us. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Life changed for everybody when we first saw that Apollo image, you know, from the moon looking back at the Earth. I mean, here is this little garden planet. It's like an island. There's one island, you know, and that's the one we're sitting on here. I mean, it's about being out there with the ocean and the peace and the quiet and maybe a couple of your buddies. And I don't know why exactly, but it's really hard to think about much else when you're out there doing that. There's something about the waterfront, especially in Maine, that I cannot stay away from. I feel much more balanced here. I feel much more myself here. I go to the ocean for comfort. I go to the ocean for ideas. I don't know what it is exactly, but there is this kind of push and pull to it. I just feel better around it. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Robin Hodgkin at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Pierce Atwood, Booth, UNE, the University of New England, and Akari. Good morning. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 25. This is Oceans and Islands, airing on Sunday, March 4th, on WLOB Radio, Portland, 1310 AM, streaming online, WLOBradio.com. With me today to talk about why we're going into Oceans and Islands is my co-host, Genevieve Morgan. Hi, Genevieve. Good morning, Lisa. And today we're going to be talking to Peter Ralston of the Ralston Gallery and also the Island Institute. David Turin of David's Restaurant, and also owner of a surf camp at Scarborough Beach, and Kelsey Hartley of Hartley Marine Services, who does work with the MS Society. You were asking me earlier, Genevieve, why are we doing Oceans and Islands? Because it's this a health show, and I'm sure there are going to be other people who have that same question. But I think we came up with some good reasons. I think we did, too. I think anyone who is thinking about taking a April break to the beach, <laughs> knows what the power of the ocean or even of going to an island and, and lying on a beach and swimming knows how health beneficial it is. And Maine is particularly, um, oceans are particularly relevant, islands are particularly relevant also to the people who live in Maine. I know that when I went to the University of Vermont, there was an enormous, actually everybody knows this, there's an enormous lake there. It's called mm-hmm. Lake Champlain. I was born in Burlington. My dad went to medical school there. I went to medical school there. And people will say to me, there's a big lake. You know, why is it that you need to live in Maine? Why couldn't you just live in Burlington and be a doctor there? Well, every time I leave the ocean side and I go inland, I can stay there for a period of time, but then I'm always drawn back. I always need that ocean fix. And I suspect there are many people in Maine who feel the same. I do. I think there is a landscape of your heart. And everyone has an internal landscape that draws them. Some people, it's the desert. Some people, it's the mountains. I think for you and I, it's been the ocean. And this is true. I, I believe in an earlier show, we talked about John O'Donohue, who was a 
who had this sort of Celtic mentality, also was a Catholic priest. He died a few years back, and he talked about the landscape of the heart and the landscape of spirituality. So this is, I, I believe we are all drawn in some way back to the ocean. And, and for health reasons, we're drawn back to the ocean, in fact, too. Well, we are mostly salt water, isn't that right? We are mostly salt water. When you think about where you come from and sort of the, the mother's womb and that dark, saline sort of atmosphere and sort of floating about, that's where you start. You the start primordial as, sea. Right. You start as a little tadpole. And sometimes we look at the ocean and we think, um, we, we don't, aren't necessarily thinking about life, but the, the ocean is a place that nourishes life of all different shapes, bigger, smaller, you know, even the seaweed that washes up on the shore. It, it's full of life. It's a sort of a life soup that's out there. Well, you talk often about us about energy and how health is energy and the ocean is and I think David Turn will talk about this the ocean is just this gigantic source of energy it's all this potential energy and kinetic energy and somehow when you are walking beside it or swimming in it you feel that essential energy that feels bigger than yourself this is very true, and um, this is, I think, one of the reasons why, as much as Lake Champlain is wonderful, and I certainly respect anybody who wants to live next to it and people who love the mountains, this is why, for me, I think I feel pulled back to the ocean, is that there is the shifting and changing, and you can see an enormous um, distance between the height of the tides and um, the low tides. And it, I mean, there is this, this change that takes place and even in the rivers. And I, I've had a medical practice seated by a river for many years now. And I, I think it's been a healing experience for my patients to be able to watch the waters flow back to the sea and hear it and to hear tinkling. it. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that even if people don't self-identify as being particularly religious or spiritual, being around a water source taps into something deeper and connects them with a, a sense of something larger than themselves, a natural rhythm or a natural cycle that's very elemental, obviously. I would definitely agree with that. I, I've seen this in my own life, especially in the last few years where I've undergone a lot of shifting and changing in my medical practice and my family and my relationship with my former husband. And, I, and what happens is if I get too caught up in the day-to-day, -day, I, all I need to do is take a run down to the ocean at sunrise or drive to the ocean at sunset. Um, and I live in Yarmouth right, right near the ocean. So, and and I, I'm able to sort of reboot. There's a mental and emotional rebooting that takes place. And I, and I know that I'm not the only person who experiences this because when I'm sitting at the Falmouth Town Landing or at Cousins Island Beach, there are other cars there with other people in there or people walking on the beach. And even this time of year, people going to Scarborough Beach and Popham. And um, I, I think there's a whole cadre of us that are being drawn back to the ocean for its healing powers. Well, I want to jump to the islands part of our show which is we've now talked about how, why, we're do, why the ocean is related to wellness, but islands, because our show is about connectivity. And when you think about islands, it's very isolated, and you, know, you think, oh, well, no man is an island. But we're doing a show that's also including islands. Now, how is that related? I think that speaks to a slightly different connectivity. And we had an individual from the Maine Island Institute uh, on a show a few weeks back he described this sense that you can go to an island and feel as if you are the first person ever to have set foot there. And 
This is something that we all need to have in our lives, is the ability to connect back to something bigger, absent of other people. Like this, an adventurous ex- explorer that's right. side of our personality. That's right. And I, and I think in Maine, there's this interesting thing that happens on islands as well, that um, it, they foster a sense of community that really is, is unique to, to our state. Actually, northern Maine has this too, and they have little pockets of land which are essentially sort of population islands, and people work together. I mean, people... Well, you can't survive unless you you work together. That's right. You you can't survive, you can't function as an individual unless you function within the group. And this is something that is lost in other other parts of the country, other parts of the world. So So what you're saying is perhaps someone living in a high-rise city apartment in the midst of population of millions might be more isolated than an individual living on an island with a population of 50. Yeah, I think islands connect us, whether they're empty or whether they have a few people on them, I I think they do cause us to really reflect um, on what it means to be connected in a bigger way. It's an interesting theme because it means that there's a, a sense of interiority and aloneness that really feeds into connectivity, both in coming and looking at the water and walking by the ocean and connecting to something larger, and then also that idea of going and visiting an island or living on an island and feeling that kind of insular sense, but then needing everybody else. I agree. I don't think we're going to need to say too much more about this. People just listen to our show. Most people who live in Maine, and even if you don't live in Maine, if you've been to Maine, you're going to resonate with the people who come on and they talk about oceans and islands. So just give us a listen, be inspired, and maybe let us know what you think. Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is pleased to have our wellness innovation segment each week sponsored by the University of New England. This week, our Oceans and Islands themed show, we feature sea urchins as a wellness innovation. Researchers are using the sea urchins to study and understand diseases like cancer, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and muscular dystrophy. Although they are invertebrates, the creatures share a common ancestor with humans and have more than 7,000 of the same genes. With a complete map of their DNA, scientists can learn how to treat and prevent diseases in humans better. For more information on this, go to sciencedaily.com or go to our drlisa.org website. For more information on the University of New England, go to une.edu. This portion of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast has been brought to you by the University of New England, UNE, an innovative health sciences university grounded in the liberal arts. UNE is the number one educator of health professionals in Maine. Learn more about the University of New England at une.edu. Today's theme, as we mentioned previously, is oceans and islands, and we are fortunate to have Peter Ralston from the Ralston Gallery in Rockport, uh, co-founder of the Island Institute, here with us in the studio today. Hello, Peter. Good morning. Why were you so interested in islands? Why did you found something called the Island Institute? Okay, Great question. I grew up in Chadsford, Pennsylvania, on the Brandywine River. And right in front of our house, the uh, the Wyeth family, Andy and Betsy Wyeth, owned a mill there. And um, the dams that, that dammed up 
the river to provide water to the, uh, the mill, made islands. These islands are, you know, 150 years old, artificial islands in the river. But they were magical places as kids. So as a kid, and then uh, in Florida with my grandparents, uh, we would poke around on boats. And islands have always been really, really magical places to me. I mean, there is that line, um, who wrote the poem, but once you've, to have slept on an island, your, your life has changed forever. Once you've slept on an island, you will never be the same again. And there's so much truth to it. So I fetch up in Maine in 1978, totally from away. And um, because of the friends who invited me here, they had islands. And it was, they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew they were baiting me in. They knew about my island thing. And, you know, I got to see some really extraordinary islands, you know, up close and, and, and personal. And it all took me back to, I mean, here I am, you know, from away uh, in my late 20s. And, you know, the arrogance or the, uh, the, the spirit, the energy of, of youth and so forth. But I was seeing a place, having traveled a lot as a photojournalist, seeing a place that wasn't really destroyed yet. I was seeing a place that, that wasn't so irreparably changed like so many other places that I've seen. I mean, we've all seen beautiful places that have been ruined, that the community, the heart, the pulse, the mojo is gone, and it's all been suburbanized and homogenized. And, and I had the, I don't know, maybe the, the naivete, but certainly the optimism and the hope. And uh, Philip Conkling, uh, the two of us started the Institute. We met. He was from Nyack, New York. And like me, had seen his natal home totally trashed. Um, you go over the Tappan Zee Bridge, there's Nyack. I mean, so here we are in Maine, and, you know, back in real community. And to me, it was a homecoming. It was really a homecoming. And um, we got together over island work. Um, and it really took off from there. It was start, you know, going from one island where we had very specific interest. This is off of Port Clyde, and then starting to see other islands, and then going to these, these uninhabited islands where you'd find cellar holes and you'd find rock walls, beautiful walls in the middle of you know, 70, 80, 100 year old spruce forest. You know, the question inevitably becomes, who was there? You know, what were these communities? And then we learned that there were once 300 year-round island communities off the coast of Maine, and today there are 14, or 15, depending on how you count them. And if there had been that sort of loss in any natural community, you know, snail darters or, you know, spotted owls, whatever, there are, you know, millions and millions of federal dollars to protect that community and so forth. Human communities, certainly out-of-sight, out-of-mind communities, don't get that kind of um, aid, you know, don't typically engender, and that's the economic reality, you know, that's the way it goes. So all of that, if this makes any sense, um, all of that comes together with us thinking maybe we can actually do something. So what we saw happen elsewhere, and you know, not just our hometowns, but all along the Atlantic coast of the United States, I mean, there are very, 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 there really are no other places like left like we've got here in Maine, where there's a coastwide maritime culture still very much intact. 
And so the Island Institute was founded to do what? Help sustain the year-round working island and inevitably the, the, the island communities, but also those communities ashore that are tied to the communities, that sustain the communities. That's a pretty broad statement. And we, and we didn't want to, we didn't constrain ourselves too much. We're not a land preservation organization. We're not a recreation organization. But it was about helping these little communities that have been here for, you know, a long time. Um, but that m now, more than ever, are really, of course, we were saying this back in 83, and it's just as true today, now more than ever, and certainly now more than even in 83, the pressure is just so intense. Um, the, the pressure that would wash away these communities, you know, where people have lived, you know, for 13 generations. I mean, there are families that have fished off the same shoreside, you know, the same wharves and, and so forth for 13 generations in some places. Well, this brings us to the oceans part of our show, which is that the health of the oceans helps sustain some of these economies, these small island economies. True? Absolutely. And that the overfishing and the pollutants in the ocean are slowly degrading yeah. their livelihoods. Yeah. Well, we're lucky here in Maine. There, you know, pollution, with a few hot spots, is, is not a major issue. It's, it's management of the fish, fisheries and governance of fisheries and the, you know, what has been called the tragedy of the commons. I mean, here's the ocean. It's you know, sort of a, that's the commons, sort of a common resource. If you look at the Maine lobster fishery, which is one of the most successful self-regulated fisheries in the world, it's, it's great. I mean, these guys, and not to be gender inappropriate, but, you know, it's mostly guys who are out there doing the fishing. These communities have been really smart about regulating and making it work. Inevitably, state regulations, federal regulations come in. But the lobster fishery is very much a success story. I mean, you talked to a fisherman last year. I mean, it was absolutely a year of record landings. They never had landings like that. Um, at the same time, you know, bait is way up, and there are environmental and fishing regulatory reasons for that. Salt's way up, diesel's way up, and that's beyond anybody's control. So the lobster fish, I mean, that is what holds these shore, you know, the working harbors together. If the lobster fishery were to go south here in Maine, I mean, it would be a, a true tragedy. It would be a game changer. The offshore fisheries, you know, that's that's a whole different story. I mean, that's much more of a management issue and overfishing, overfishing including, you know, extra national, you know, other countries' fleets coming in and very complex stuff. And and indeed, fisheries was one of the things the Institute has become very, very involved with here in Maine and then almost by default elsewhere. I mean, what we've learned here is what, what can be applied to islands here. Um, you know, there are lessons we can learn and share, and, and I mean, that's what community is. You know, you're learning and sharing. Shelley Pingree, um, you know, who, of course, is from North Haven, you know, Shelley's great line years ago when we were starting the Institute, and we were, Shelley and I are pretty tight. Shelley's great line then, and it's been sort of a mantra throughout, is islands are really laboratories of community, you know, the models of community. So it's the the microcosm representing the macrocosm. It's this whole sense that something smaller can represent something bigger. Yeah, and I mean, be useful as, to be studied. Yeah, I mean, if you really look at it, I mean, um, who was it that um, Joni Mitchell sang? You know, this little green garden planet in the 
the darkness of space. I mean, here is, you know, life changed for everybody when we first saw that Apollo image, you know, from the moon looking back at the Earth. I mean, here is this little garden planet. It's like an island. Um, and you're talking about a lot of things that are very, you're talking about financial, ec- economic, um, sustainability. You're talking about a lot of really big issues. But one of the things that fascinates me about your interaction with the Island Institute is how you have drawn people in to support the Island Institute. And that comes mm. from your background in photojournalism. Well, I think there are a lot of reasons that people have, I think what's really drawn people to the Institute's work is, is passion for place. Um, but some of this passion for place, I mean, you can't deny the impact of your photography and the photography of the islands in, in bringing people to support your organization. That has been part of it. We were really lucky. When we started the Institute, Philip and I thought, well, we'll, we'll publish. I mean, Philip's a, a wonderful writer, and I kn- knew, you remember film. I used to know what to do with film. Um, and we thought we would publish. Uh, it was Betsy Wyeth, Andrew Wyeth's wife, who, who really encouraged us. And it was a brilliant, brilliant moment for us. She said, look, you know, if you're going to publish, if you're going to spread the word and so forth, don't just do some mimeograph, self-congratulatory thing. She said, really, really do it right. Philip, you're a wonderful writer. Peter, you know what you're doing with the camera. Do it first rate. And thus was born, like that moment was born, the, uh, the Island Journal. And we used that you know, year one, we had like zero members, we had two contributors, and we were off and running. And we did think that combining um, stories, telling stories, and, and sharing information, sharing lessons, would, you know, grow awareness. I mean, when we first went to Augusta, there was actually, so help me God, there was a state legislator in Maine, you know, here we are, and um, they remarked to Philip, you mean there are people that live on those islands all year? Yeah. Truly out of sight, out of mind. You know, the year-round population is something like 5,000 now. Wicked independence and ultimately, ineluctably, has to be interdependence. And it's a great mix, which is why these communities are so intense and everybody does know everybody and everything about everybody. If I were to drop this bottle now on an island, they'd know about it on the other side of the island before it hit the ground. And, yeah, I mean, that completely freaks out some people. But others, I mean, I'm a small-town boy. I love it, you know, close and intimate like that. I have two relatives who live on an island, different islands, but um, I've grown accustomed now to their habit of stopping by. They just stop by, no warning. But the doors, the doors open. The doors should be open because that's what it's like in their community. Mm. And so it doesn't matter. They don't expect you to look a certain way or, or you know, have food on the table or anything like that. But it's just social and it's a time to be together. And that's a really interesting way, part of community there. That that here in the city we go out to meet our friends and we make a plan. Mm. But on the islands you can just stop by at any time. You have a problem, you have a celebration, you just share it. I I was a little in the last minute mode when I was calling some of these people. And I I had been told, well, you'll probably want to visit so-and-so. And And I knew some of them, but some were first time for me. And as you know, I'm chatty and I show up with, you know, cameras and all this stuff. But I've been around long enough that I feel pretty comfortable talking to anybody. So I called and one... Um, 80-year-old woman, I'm sorry, she would kill me, 78-year-old woman, 
down there who's had, a, who's had quite a tough life, quite a tough life. And I was told she's not going to be altogether comfortable about this. I mean, I've got a new friend for life. This little piece of porcelain that I now carry, I mean, she gave this to me, and she believes that God leaves her, leads her to everything she finds on the beaches. And um, her line, so I'm talking to her, I'm halfway to the ferry saying, by the way, I'm coming, and can I see you, and might I call on you, and I promise it won't be too painful. Her line was, uh, come aboard. It was just so beautiful. I thought, that's it, you know, come aboard. We'll return to our interview after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. Robin Hodgkin, Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney in Portland, Maine. For all your investment needs, call Robin Hodgkin at 207-771-0888. Investments and services are offered through Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC, member SIPC, and by Akari an urban sanctuary of beauty, wellness, and style, located on Middle Street in Portland, Maine's Old Port. Follow them on Facebook and learn more about their new boutique and Medispa at akaribeauty.com. And by Booth, accounting and business management services, payroll, and bookkeeping. Business is done better with Booth. Go to boothmaine.com for more information. You own a gallery, and as you know, for centuries, Maine Islands have inspired great artists, great American artists all around, including the Wyatts. Do you think that that has something to do with it, that feeling, that spiritual? Why, why are Maine Islands so inspiring to the nation's artists? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Well, cer certainly the first, the, the duff factor on that one is they're just so beautiful. But... I really think that's the half of it. I mean, um, speaking for myself, and yeah, if you, you know, do even scratch American art history, they've all been here. I mean, it really is amazing. Um, there's the light. I mean, the light is, is flat out different. You know, I've always been very keenly aware of light. I mean, light was my first word. Light is how I make my living. I write in light, you know, that photography. The light is different. It's unique. And it's, and we get, you know, the old wait five minutes, the weather's going to change. So there are all these fluctuations. And that's dramatic and exciting and edgy and, and wonderful. And thank God we have the, you know, the winners we do. Um, you know, quite partial to the winners. But it's the people, too. And I think it's, it's the culture, you know. Whereas, I mean, we can say today it's all gone everywhere else. Well, you know, back in the 50s, things had changed dramatically. Culture, um, resource-driven cultures, you know, are very disadvantaged. I mean, the world doesn't, you know, you can't hold back the tide of agribusiness and, you know, big business and sort of the homogenization, the box stores and all that. There's just knowing, no going back on that in America. But... You know, there is, there really is, and I say this, you know, almost nervously, because one wants at all costs to avoid caricatures or stereotyping, but there is an independence. There is a spirit and an ethic and a mojo and a, and a community. Why, I mean, these are not easy places. Um, there is danger, you know, anytime 
you know, you're fooling around on boats and going back and forth, and there's fog, and there's night, and there's winter, and there's ice, you know, all of it, not to mention those pesky ledges. Um, it, it adds something, you know, and I, I think there is, there really is a quality in these communities that you simply don't find in other places. That's true today. Now, what you know, artists of 100 years ago were finding. I think if you go back and look at what some of the great ones were painting then, even then, you know, 100 years ago, they were onto that. You know, they got it. It was present. Well, you've spoken to us about a lot of very profound themes, and I know we could spend a lot of time talking to you, a lot more time talking to you, but we appreciate your coming in and spending time with us today. Maybe we'll have you back again in the future. My arm is very easily twisted by the pair of you. <laughs> and you know, if anybody's hear. interested, I, I told you before, I'm, my initials aren't PR well, for yes, nothing. Well, yes, I was going to ask you, how can people find out more about you, what you do, and the Island Institute? It's easy. And, of course, we all have our little iPads and smartphones and computers. And the Institute really has a fascinating mission and, and website, which is islandinstitute.org. And then the almost as fascinating and interesting Ralston Gallery site is ralstongallery.com. And I've got lots and lots of pictures there. I'm now doing a thing. I'm finally coming out of my shy mode. Yes, I can tell you're very shy. I am. Mm -hmm. And I'm now, I'm actually, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but I'm telling um, one story a week. I decided for a year I would tell the story behind images primarily driven by the fact that everybody, you know, I get tired of hearing, so what are the sheep doing in the boat? You know, that one. So now or, you're just going to preempt that by telling people what the sheep are doing in the yeah. boat. So there are, there will end up with 52 stories. And this is on your website? Yeah. Print of the week. Very good. Well, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Truly my pleasure. Our next guest is an individual who, along with his wife, has come to be a friend. Um, this individual is a big supporter of the events that go on through Maine Magazine. This is David Turin, and I'm going to allow Genevieve Morgan to interview him for Maine Magazine Minutes. Thanks, Lisa. David, we had a great interview about six months ago yeah, for Maine. It was Maine. super fun. It yeah, was super yeah. fun for Maine Magazine. And uh, you have a great career as a restaurateur, but... The thing that actually gets your heart going in the morning is surfing. And yeah, I like to joke that the restaurant's my hobby, you know, and the, the uh, surfing thing's my real job. But, you know, reality would catch up with me probably if I said that. Well, we're on this show now, Oceans and Islands, so let's talk a little bit about the oceans, because you weren't born near an ocean. Well, I was born near Lake Erie, which is, until you really see the ocean, you think that's a big body of water, and then you get, you know, I mean, Lake Erie's green, so, or mud brown, depending on your vantage point, I guess. But no, I, I grew up pretty far from the ocean, didn't really see it until I was about 16, and, uh, you know, then started surfing as soon as I had the chance. And then, how did surfing change your life? Well, uh, I guess it relaxed me, and uh, I found out that going surfing every day is a phenomenal way to just sort of be active in, in your environment. And so it uh, probably saved my life, truthfully, honestly. So that's, that's a pretty big change, right? Yeah. Staying alive? Yeah. Well, and you have a uniquely stressful work environment. Well, that's what people say. Yeah, I'm being in the restaurant business. I'm coming up on uh, 29 years this year as a restaurant owner. Which and your is, restaurants are? Uh, I own David's Restaurant in Portland and David's Street in South Portland now. 
So numbers eight and nine in my restaurant career. I only own two now, but yeah, it's a it's a uh, it's a busy job. There's always a lot of moving parts, and there's a lot of people involved, and so um, it requires a lot of time. And uh, I've heard people say that it's a very stressful job. So having pretty much only been involved in that career for a long time, I don't know by comparison, but I'd take that as true. You also have a surf camp. I do. And it's one of the oldest in Maine. I think it is the, I think we started the concept in Maine, um, which it was really an idea that I stole from California because they were running surf camps for kids out there for a long time. But um, I actually went to a surf camp in San Clemente, she's uh, probably, I don't know, 17, 18 years ago or something like that. And they had uh, surfing camp for kids, and then they had one session a summer for adults. And I went and slept on the beach in San Clemente State Park and went surfing every day and lived in a, a tent. And, you know, we went to and from different breaks in this, uh, in, a, in a, what do they call it, a, 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 a you know, one of those uh, travel trailer things. And uh, it was fantastic. And I met a bunch of people. I've been surfing around the world with one of them, been to Fiji and South Africa and and Costa Rica and all these places, and uh, I made some friends. And so, you know, after doing that a couple times, I thought, you know, I, I could I could do this. And it, it really sort of started by accident. I had a couple of restaurants in Massachusetts, and uh, I sold them. And uh, I, honestly, because the stress really was getting to me, I was driving back and forth and almost drove my car off the road one night at about 2.30 in the morning after doing a late, late party. And, and I said, you know what, I got to I got to get rid of this. This is going. I'm going to die on the road here. You know, and those rumble strips saved my life. So anyway, I I thought, oh, I'll teach a little surfing after I sold the restaurant, and then next thing you know, the camp just evolved, and we ended up with like a real business out of the thing. And the great thing about surfing is it actually gets you into the water in Maine, yeah. which can be cold and off-putting to some people. But yeah. water, especially ocean swimming, is very therapeutic. So. Can anyone surf? Can anyone learn how to surf? Well, um, I'd say the the range of um, people who we've had as candidates have ranged from kids as small as five and six years old, who we don't really take in our camp, but we've taught some lessons for really little kids. We've had some, uh, we've had actually quite a number of autistic kids come. And I, I think that the reason they bring them is because for some reason people with autism, they find that the water is a very soothing place. I, I, I don't know a lot about this, so I could be completely wrong, but I understand that uh, autistic kids like to swim. They like to be in the water. And so we've had a number of autistic kids who are um, you know, relatively high functioning. And then um, sort of through the age groups, um, I think the oldest uh, surf candidate we had was uh, my stepmother, who was uh, 79, I think, the last time that she went. I'm sure she's thrilled that you just outed her on radio with her <laughs> age there. Oh, actually, she's quite proud of it because she gets a discount for skiing as a senior citizen, and she gets carded. And now she's 83, and she's really happy to lay down. It's I really am 83 because most of the ski areas will give you a free ticket when you're over 75. So she's like, oh, yeah, sign me up. Turn to our interview after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. Pierce Atwood, part of the Portland legal community for 120 years. Clients turn to Pierce Atwood for help with important deals and critical disputes, for creative solutions and sound advice about legal or business strategy, for peace of mind. For more information on Pierce Atwood, go to www.pierceatwood.com and by Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, makers of Dr. John's Brainola cereal. Find them on the web at orthopedicspecialistsme.com. 
Let's go back a little bit to this idea of surfing saving your life because that's not you're not the first person yeah. I've heard tell me that. Um, it's so trite. I mean, yeah, come on, dude, man, it'll change your life. Try surfing, but it's really yeah. True. And you, I actually yeah. think you are somebody who can articulate why that is the case because you you go out there almost every day now, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, still to this day. And you get on your board, and I know that you've said to me before in the interview that sometimes, in Maine, sometimes it's flat even. You're not catching the waves. That's not actually what it's about. Um, Well, I mean, it's awfully nice when you go out there and the surf is perfect, but it doesn't really matter where you go. Um, The surf is not perfect all the time. I mean, if you follow the contest circuit, I mean, most surf contests are run in really pretty bad surf, honestly. So when there's great surf, it's even even in the best places, it's not the common fact. So... I mean, it's about being out there with uh, the ocean and the peace and the quiet and um, maybe a couple of your buddies. And it's, uh, it, it's, I don't know why exactly, but it's really hard to think about much else when you're out there doing that. Um, and uh, sometimes, you know, a lot of times, especially in the summer, it's not our big surf season in terms of the size of the waves. There's a lot of times when you go out and there are you know, knee-high waves or smaller, and you're just out on a board and you're paddling around. And now um, stand-up paddle boarding has really caught on, and that really doesn't require any surf at all. Most people really just want to paddle on flat water. And there's, I don't know, maybe maybe an acupuncturist, maybe Lisa, you could explain that there's got to be some energy that flows, you know, ions that come up through your, I don't know why, but it, it really washes you. It's the, you know, it's the rinse cycle. It really is. Well, yeah. and, and you're right. You're absolutely right. And we've actually talked about this, and there's this, this, this kidney energy, and the kidney is associated with the element of water. And water can simultaneously be a source of fear and a source of wisdom. So if you're surfing and you're learning to sort of interact with the water, then it becomes a source of wisdom and nourishment and, and less a source of fear. So you're absolutely right that this rinse cycle, it's, it's not anything you've imagined. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to articulate it, but you just struck on something that I think is really interesting because you say it's a source of fear and energy. And wisdom. And wisdom. All right, that's what you said, wisdom. And I, but because as a surfer, I mean, most surfers who've spent any time surfing will tell you a story about when they got really scared because the ocean's tremendously powerful. And it's it's uh, sad and shocking when you hear stories about, you know, every now and then some real uh, expert pro surfer will die. Um you know, clearly not doing what we do at our camp. I mean, it's a different element of the sport than obviously what we're doing with the, you know, 12-year-old kids. But there's a power and there's an unknown factor. And every surfer I know will talk about a time when, you know, the adrenaline was flowing and they're scared, but there's also this tremendous comfort in it. And um, it, it's it's very, very hard to describe, you know, well, which we, get out of that. Well, we start but. out as aquatic creatures before we're born, you know, in the womb. And so coming out and then going yeah. back. I've always thought that. Was the water was... warmer in that environment? <laughs> <laughs> that's the one thing. Well, there's 98.9. Yeah, 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 there you go. That, that's, that's one of the things we have to get used to with what we're doing here. It's the water's colder. The gear is important. So that's one thing. And do you think that this this whole having to deal with the fear and gaining the wisdom and the rinse cycle, do you think this goes back to the saving your life element that you're describing? That's a really interesting question um, because, you know, thinking back, uh, I, and I think it's sort of a scary thing that every young surfer seems to go through because you get a sense of invincibility. You know, you start to catch waves and you start to get a little bit good at it and you're starting to get proficient and you think there's nothing you can't do until the ocean slaps you around a little bit and then you have that. And I, Almost every surfer I know will tell a story about when they were learning and, you know, 
they thought they were Superman, you know, nothing could stop me. And then they get knocked down and cheered, get held under or whatever. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it, it, there's probably something, there's a connection between, you know, the water and maybe a little bit of fear and the pleasure. And then this just sense, I, I mean, the thing about surfing, people who haven't surfed that don't get, um, and I'm a skier. The reason that it's, and snowboarders particularly talk about this, well, surfing and snowboarding are a lot alike, right? Well, the thing is that the mountain doesn't move. You know, it, it's static. So when you go out and you're skiing or you're snowboarding, uh, you know, the terrain is there and you're moving around it. And the ocean is such a dynamic environment. And there's every single ride that you ever take will be different than any other one. I mean, and I suppose it's true to a lesser degree with your, you know, with, with the downhill sport. But having that thing move around you and being part of it and then there's an interaction that happens between you and the wave where you change the wave, the wave change you, it changes you. And you're, I don't know, there's something that's, that's really kind of uh, beautiful and poetic. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's beautiful. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes it's, uh, it's, you know, a lot of senses going on. And the little bit of surfing that I've done in, when I was doing research for the article, uh, there's a lot of effort. And then there's a moment of no effort Yeah. when the wave energy blends with your own and for me it was a nanosecond yeah. <laughs> well, well you know it, it's funny because talking about surfing people always say oh it must be great for your legs and you say well the amount of time you actually spend standing up on a surfboard is really small compared to the amount of time that you spend paddling so surfing's really great for your arms <laughs> and, and unless it's funny because now there's the whole sport of stand-up paddling which you're standing up all the time and people report very quickly, it's like, oh my gosh, my core it was really so hard. My leg, because you're you're standing on a moving object, so you all these little micro muscles and fibers are you know firing to sort of keep your balance. And you do that for an hour or so, and you come back, and you know, people are like, they're all stiff in here, and you know, and their and their core, the top, of their thighs, and all that. I'm like, how did that happen? I and mean, we didn't do anything. So yes, you did. But um, when you're uh, wave surfing. It's a whole different thing because all that work to get out there and you're paddling, you got to put yourself in the right place and then this burst of energy to match the speed of the wave so you can catch the wave. And then you get this incredible moment or a few moments of effortless where the wave is, is projecting you and you're riding that energy. You know, and the thing is, the wave isn't the water moving. It's something that's below the surface of the water. It's moving through the water. And that's a really hard notion to get across to people when you're teaching them to ride away because they want to surf in the white water where the wave is already broken because that's the obvious place where the energy is present. But that's not really where you surf. You really surf on the, a surf on the unbroken wave, so you're on the unbroken surface of the water, so you're surfing on the wave energy itself. And there, um, you probably heard of Laird Hamilton. You're doing all your research here. You know, he comes up in every book that has anything to do. Well, he created this thing where they ride a, uh, it's basically a dolphin wave that they put on this. It's a, it's a metal um, uh, fin that they put in the water and they ride it in the open ocean. And they can ride it for like, you know, 15, 20 miles between islands in Hawaii. And it's just the force of the wave moving through the water. And they figured out a way to harness that with this with this sort of wing fin shaped device that's in the water and you're standing up above it. And it, that really demonstrates how the, the wave is this force that moves through the water. Not, you know, it's not the water. It's kind of an interesting. So. Well, it's March in Maine. And the water is still very cold, so yep. you need a what a, a five level five thickness wetsuit if you're going to yeah, get out there um, now. Yeah, that's kind of the that's kind of the 
beginning of our season is March. The water's the coldest February and March. And but then summer's coming. Yeah, summer's coming quickly. Yeah. So how can people get in touch with you and join the surf camp or sign their kids up for the surf um, camp? We have a website, which is pretty active, surfcampme.com. And uh, that's the best way to reach us is to go there and uh, shoot us an email through our contact page. And it's and a, a week camp, so you can go for week segments. For, well, we do a week camp for kids from ages 9 to 15. And um, then we do lessons for any age over 8, really. Um, and so adults you know, usually want to come for a day or you know, a couple of days. And then that's just a lesson. So we do that as well. That's great. Well, I would encourage anybody out there who's listening to contact David and go get wet this summer. And, and Genevieve, you're going to come this summer to increase that time on the wave from nanoseconds to seconds. I, I, absolutely. Okay, it was a good. great experience. Yeah. I wouldn't miss it. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. That was my pleasure. Thanks for having me in. To read more about David Turin and his passion for surfing and the sea, visit us at themainmag.com. To read more about David's restaurant, pick up a current issue of The Main Magazine, our special food edition, at a local newsstand near you. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. And by Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. With offices in Yarmouth, Maine, the Shepard Financial team is there to help you evolve with your money. For more information on Shepard Financial's refreshing perspective on investing, please email Tom at shepherdfinancialmain.com. As part of our Give Back segment on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast for our Oceans and Islands-themed show, we've invited Kelsey Hartley of Hartley Marine Services. She is the president and at age 28 and a female is uh, in a very unique position. So we thought not only does she do this, but there is uh, the MS Harbor Fest that takes place in August every year. And there's a tugboat muster that I happen to be privileged to be part of last year on her tugboat. So this is the reason we have Kelsey in here today. Well, thanks for having me. And Genevieve Morgan is sitting next to me. Hi, Kelsey. It's a pleasure. Nice to meet you, too. Kelsey, you are, well, as I said, you're young. You're female. We had a conversation before we came on air about how uh, relevant that is because not that many women do what you do. I mean, you're the president of a tugboat service operation. Yeah, um, my situation's, um, you know, quite unique. I kind of fell into it. Um, well, you know, chose to become part of this. But um, my um, my dad started this company back in 1984. Um, he passed away in 2007, and um, you know that was that was a crazy summer for us. I didn't really know what I was doing at the time, so um, I jumped back into the company to be closer to him, to find a way to connect with him, and um, realized that I loved it, and I loved all the people that were involved with it, and um, have just been you know found a lot of satisfaction in in being part of it. We we've been talking about the healing power of the ocean 
and the fact that this is one of the reasons we wanted to have this show. There's a, there's a few different reasons. I mean, we heal the ocean by being good to it from an environmental standpoint, but it also heals us. Did you Definitely. find that to be so in your case? Yeah, um, I you know I've I've traveled all over the place, and in my years of going to college and coming back, um, there's something about the waterfront, especially in Maine, that I cannot stay away from. I feel much more balanced here. I feel much more myself here. I go to the ocean for comfort. I go to the ocean for ideas. Um, I don't know what it is exactly, but there is this kind of push and pull to it. I just feel um, better around it. <laughs> And your dad passed away suddenly. Yeah, he um, he was a pilot. He had a Cherokee 6, and um, he was going to New York to, I think he was looking for an engine or a couple engines for one of our boats, and um, they hit a microburst, a, a huge storm, and didn't make it. He was how old? He was uh, 54, 53 at the time. And you have a couple of younger sisters, Yes, I, I have two younger sisters, um, one is uh, in college, and the other one um, is just recently moved back to Maine. So we're ba- all back in Maine together. So this must have been really challenging for your mother, who I think is a teacher? Yes, she's a teacher. She's an elementary school teacher. Um, and, yeah, it, it was super challenging for everybody. We kind of have, our family has a really strong work ethic, and so one of the ways we dealt with it was just to go right to work. Um, and it's been interesting because just recently I think we've started to kind of open up about how it affected us, which is, you know, four years later. <laughs> so it, it's uh, it's kind of a way that we're reconnecting as a family, too, is kind of looking at our experiences around the accident and, and how we've changed, how it's changed us, um, how it's changed our path in life, and how it's brought us back together in a way. Do you think that the people that work on the waterfront in addition to the ocean being healing, do you think that the people that work with you and up and down the coast of Maine had an impact on your healing? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, the That's one of the reasons that I think I'm really, really involved with the company is that there's a huge network of amazing people that are attached to it. And um, they've I've, I've gone to them for, for strength just as much as I've gone to the ocean, I think. And I think that the reason that they work in this industry. I don't know what the reason they work in this industry is, but I think there there's something that's kind of all connected between working on the waterfront, you know, the types of characters that you see that do that. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's where I find all my strength. <laughs> now tell us about tugboats. Okay, tugboats are awesome. <laughs> um, when I started going to Tugmusters back in 2000. Um, yeah, Kelsey, can you explain exactly what a Tugmuster okay. is? Because I've never been to one. <laughs> oh, you'll have to go. They're lots of fun. And I didn't know what they were until I went last year. Yeah. They are a lot of fun. They're a good time. Um, Tugmuster is part of the MS Society Harbor Fest, which will happen at the end of August. I think it's the third weekend. And um, it's in a few parts. There's a sailboat regatta, a poker run, and Tugmuster. Tugmuster is for the tugboats. It's um, a day where they get together and play, which, you know, they're usually hard working. Shoot the fire hoses at each Essentially, other? Essentially, <laughs> yeah, all of it, all of it. They do different demos of, you know, the capabilities of the tugs, and then they have things like tugboat races, pushing contests, um, there's a parade, and then there's just lots of barbecuing and kind of... Uh, reminiscing of old tugboat stories and it's a really good way to kind of bring the maritime community together for a day 
and, and you know, play with all your competition <laughs> and for a good cause. So we have a lot of fun. Yeah, it was impressive to watch the tugboats kind of push up against each other. Oh, I mean, those amazing are mammoth machined. boats yeah. that are out there on the water. That's thousands and thousands of horsepower. So you'll see Portland Harbor will just get churned up. The mud from the bottom is all over the harbor. It's great. Um, but it's just, it's amazing to see that type of machinery play like that. It's like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. And it is nice to have that play element because I, aren't the tugboats sort of the workhorses? Yeah, of they really the are. I mean, world? yeah, they get everything done. They're they're huge to industry. You know, they move a lot of product up and down the coast. <clears throat> now, I know that one of the things that has been important is to continue on the family tradition as far as just the company. But is this also the case with the MS Harbor Fest? Did you keep doing this because this was something that was started before your dad? Yeah, yeah, my dad started it, and um, for me, it's become kind of a celebration every year. You know, you know, first of all, it's a great cause, and I love all the dynamics that's going on. It's bringing the maritime community together. It's fundraising for a horrible disease, which everyone would love to see a cure for. But um, one part of it for me is to celebrate. We've gone through another year, you know, through bad economy and ups and downs. And um, it's just kind of like a, you know, a statement of we're here, we're going to stay here, and we're going to get better and better every year. How can people come to the Harbor Fest? Uh, so it's it's um, set up right in the harbor, the lobster boat races and Tugmuster. Um, and even this, you know, the sailboat regatta is going to be right in Portland Harbor. For the tugboat muster, the best place to see it is on the Eastern Promenade. So if you go set up, there's going to be tents, and I think they're going to have food. I know there's going to be a 5K race this year. So essentially draw everyone up the hill, and you can just kind of watch from there. Um, and then right downtown in the harbor, too, you, you'll be able to kind of sneak out onto the piers and check things out. And it's... The people who get to actually be on the tugboats are pretty special. I mean, I had to wear like a t-shirt. And, yeah, yeah. We have. Know. My dad started a tradition with t-shirts. He always loved t-shirts. So um, for our crew, we tend to make up brightly colored shirts to kind of unify everyone. So for the day, everybody's part of Hartley Marine and you know part of the event. We've had turquoise and orange and green and pink one year. Pink was the year that I decided to celebrate. You know, this is woman-owned company. <laughs> that was my statement and. I don't think some of our guys appreciate it very much. They were good sports, though. Uh, so I said no more pink. <laughs> we'll do maybe like a salmon color sometime. <laughs> well, I think this is a, a great thing that you continue to do in honor of your dad and also continue to work through, well, work. I yeah. Mean, all the things that you need to do to run a company. Yeah, I learn every day. It's uh, it's an amazing experience. It's It's such a rush every day. And... Yeah, I have a lot of great people helping me out. And we know that it's also um, the MS Harbor Fest. People also appreciate what you do. And you're an inspiration to me. When I heard your story last year and I had been on the tugboat, I didn't know that much about you. And I heard your story and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is this is a woman that that people need to know more about, which is why we invited you to be on the show. So well, thank thanks. you. Thank you very today. much. <laughs> Our bodies are often the first indicators that something isn't quite working. Are you having difficulty sleeping, anxiety, or chronic pain issues? Maybe you've had a job loss, divorce, or recent empty nest. Dr. Lisa specializes in helping people through times of change and inspiring individuals to create joyful, sustainable lives. Visit doctorlisa.org 
For more information on her Yarmouth, Maine medical practice, and schedule your office visit or phone consult today. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 25, Oceans and Islands, airing for the first time on Sunday, March 4th, 2012. Our show included Peter Ralston of the Ralston Gallery and formerly of the Island Institute, David Turin of David's Restaurant and owner of a local surf camp, and Kelsey Hartley of Hartley Marine Services, representing also the MS Harborfest. As we discussed, living in Maine, we have the unique opportunity to be healed by a vast resource, which is the ocean. The ocean heals us in many ways. Not only does it have a saline content, which is similar to our own blood plasma, but it provides an endless vista by which we may sit and observe things like sunrises. In addition, we find ourselves drawn to the people who walk along and work along the ocean waterfront. As Kelsey Hartley described, there's an entire population of people that we may not even realize exist working out there on the waters off the coast of Maine. Anyone who lives in Maine or has ever visited this state realizes how healing this big ocean is. And as one who has lived in Maine almost all of her life, I can certainly attest to this fact. We at the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast hope that you are inspired to visit the ocean on a regular basis and also to listen to more of our shows. We hope that you are downloading our show on iTunes so that you may have it delivered to your inbox weekly. We hope that you'll give us feedback through our doctorlisa.org website and that you will subscribe to our e-newsletter through that same website. We'd really like to know what you think. We'd like to know how you are inspired and how you are healed. We'd like to know what future topics we may present for you. Thank you so much for listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. Thank you for being part of our world. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Robin Hodgkin at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Pierce Atwood, Booth, UNE, the University of New England, and Akari. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded in downtown Portland at the offices of Maine Magazine on 75 Market Street. It is produced by Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Editorial content produced by Chris Cast and Genevieve Morgan. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Jane Pate. For more information on our hosts, production team, main magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at doctorlisa.org. Tune in every Sunday at 11 a.m. For the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour on WLOB Portland, Maine, 1310 AM, or streaming WLOBradio.com. Podcasts are available at drlisa.org.